You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a private lender whose clientele is fairly eclectic, that is to say, diversified, and his shop has been able to carve out a few very interesting niches in the space. We also have a high-energy and experienced investment advisor, has some really great homespun advice on how to manage one's money and emotions in volatile markets and this increasingly complex financial system we find ourselves. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Today is Thursday, May 27th. This is James Baron with CASA and Alternative Thinking. Today we have Ida Kajadorian with Richardson GMP and Steve Tiller with Sterling Global slash Slate Securities. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Uh, start with, uh, with, the, uh, with you, Ida. Thanks, James. Thanks for inviting me to do this podcast. And Steve, thanks for your time. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Ida Kajadorian. I'm a Director of Wealth Management and Portfolio Manager and Investment Advisor at Richardson GMP. Uh, For over 20 years, I've had the pleasure of pursuing my passion for investing and working with high net worth and ultra high net worth families, including business owners, family offices and institutions, as well as many finance professionals delivering a unique perspective to investing. In the last seven years, I've been at Richardson GMP, where I've been better able to serve my clients and in taking a holistic approach to wealth management, offering tax and estate planning, insurance, and having other tools, uh, being at an independent wealth management firm has given me access to many different alternative strategies and strategies that you might not see elsewhere. And uh, it's been great. I've always opted to incorporate alternatives into my practice, especially for times like these, to provide protection, lower volatility, and superior risk-adjusted returns for my clients. That's great. So Ida, what do you consider to be, uh, like I said, high net worth and ultra high net worth? How, how do you define that in, in your practice? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I typically work with clients who have more sophisticated needs. They might be business owners uh, and need uh, tax and estate planning from a different level. Um, these mm. would be clients that might be interested in um, private placements and or uh, have different needs with trading and or they would uh, be insiders of publicly traded companies Mm. uh, and need help with uh, some planning and uh, they could even we might even be doing group insurance group rsps and group insurance for employees uh, and things of that nature that doesn't exclude however uh, other high net worth families who have assets of a million or more. Um, mm-hmm. t- typically, that would be the minimum that I would work with. Um, and clients who have amassed, uh, I guess, have larger estates and complicated situations with wealth transfer uh, and, su- and mm-hmm. they might need succession planning and things like that from a business perspective. Wow, that's a whole menu of stuff there. Yeah, it's a, I'm glad to hear it's not just the the assets, but it's more like the needs of, of them. And, um, and I guess for the insiders, is that for their, their, is it like private shares or, or large shareholdings of public companies? And then you, 
might help them to to sell it off or or diversify their portfolio? What kind of uh, other kind of investment services do you have there? It could be both. It could be clients who are running companies and have shares in their businesses. They might take them public, so they'll have mm. employees as well. They might be clients who, through their business, come across interesting opportunities with clients that they might have where they can invest in their clients' businesses and those businesses eventually go public. Um, mm. So it would be yeah. uh, a lot of different scenarios. Yeah, so you're, you're there for pretty much anything that has to do with public, private shares, uh, especially the going going public side. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we have access to a lot of different opportunities as well where I can bring ideas to my clients. And mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've also worked with and continue to work with wealthy families who are spending their money on interesting investments who become fairly sizable shareholders. Uh, mm. and, and so we, we do help with trading and... Uh, and with some of some of those transactions. Very cool. And then you're active in the alternative investment side, I guess as well. Like, how, is that a larger portion of your book there, or how do how do you kind of like uh, how do you define it? Yes, um, roughly thirty to forty percent of my practice would be allocated to alternatives. Um, I do have younger clients who would have less and would be more growth oriented. However, for the majority of clients, even if uh, you're young. Some of these strategies are just fantastic, uh, like the one we're going to be discussing today. So regardless mm-hmm. of market environment, if you have great returns and a great team, uh, we would definitely want to have access to alternatives that can provide great risk-adjusted returns for the long term, especially if we can get some of that income coming into registered accounts for the long term, that compounding or that income coming in over many years in a tax efficient manner is really stellar. That's awesome. Well, that's a perfect segue. Let's hear from Steve and what he's been doing and what, uh, what Sterling, uh, Sterling and Slate Securities does. Sure. Thanks, Ida. And thank you, uh, James. Um, I'm Steve Tiller and uh, CEO and partner of Sterling Global Financial. And we are an alternative asset manager, uh, really uh, focused in four key areas, uh, primarily real estate and financial services. Um, the four key operating metrics are businesses. We have approximately $9 billion of assets under administration. And as I said, uh, really four diverse uh, but also synergistic areas. Uh, you know, Sterling Bank and Trust, a full-service private bank focused on mortgage lending. We have uh, the oldest trust company uh, in the Caymans, Sterling Trusco, uh, really focused on uh, high net worth family offices, uh, Fortune 100 companies, uh, where we service their corporate and, uh, financial services, and then our main uh, one of our main businesses hmm. are real estate investment funds, where we have a series of real estate funds focused on both debt and equity, and the principal uh, flagship fund we'll be talking about today is our mortgage income fund, which is a true income fund and. Uh, uh, an alternative asset uh, platform for us that has been in operation uh, over seven years. And prior to that, the two predecessor funds were uh, another 10 years in front of that. So we've been at this a long time. And our fourth leg mm-hmm. of the business is our, uh, is our development and uh, operating businesses. We have about a billion dollars under development now. Uh, really, a, the best part of that is an extensive team. Uh, 
that is focused on construction and development. And we have some strong partnerships with uh, some world uh, brands such as Montage Hotels, building a resort right now. Um, and uh, in uh, Nassau, mm-hmm. Paradise Island, we, uh, we have a strong platform in marinas, which in terms of alternative assets is almost like a toll, brew, toll booth on the water, as we call it. <laughs> Where, oh, nice. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where it is an infrastructure business and, uh, uh, you know, it's now been accepted uh, 18 months ago in the United States. The IRS now accepts uh, marina income as part of the uh, total REIT income as good income. So obviously that's uh, been a quiet, uh, super growth node. And we think with uh, uh, the recent developments, it strengthens that. And we'll talk about that a little later. But, um, you know, we have a very strong team as, you know, we're not afraid in our lending businesses to take over assets because we, again, we have a construction team, we have a development team, one of our the fellow heads up our development uh, operations is one of the founding uh, partners of uh, Interwest, physically built, nice. uh, yeah. built Whistler for us skiers, uh, mm-hmm. Mount Tremblant, a gentleman named Bill Green, who's uh, super strong. And uh, uh, that's, that's a, a good part of our background. My background is really uh, all real estate, financial services, uh, investment banking with RBC, uh, all of the 90s, um, ran a, a merchant advisory bank for Raskan Brookfield, and then ran uh, Bank of Montreal, Harris Bank's investment banking real estate platform. So um, that's, uh, I think, a quick overview of uh, who we are and some of the diverse areas that we're in. Wow, there's quite a few pieces to your corporate puzzle and your personal one. You got a lot of stuff going on there. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it's interesting. Like I could have came in every year and and uh, you know, that's a great place to be, obviously. There's a lot of funds mm-hmm. that are out there. Uh, and then but you have a high net worth there too. And then so are most of your investors like Canadian, American, Caymanian, or or uh, like foreign? Like how, how what's your investor makeup like? Yeah, that's a good question, James. Yeah, we're, um, as I said, our, the, the Trusco we have there has been there 50 years. So that's a long time. There's over mm-hmm. 3 trillion of assets in the Caymans uh, and 92% are U.S. assets. So a very strong mm-hmm. connection. Um, our grouping is about a third are uh, Fortune 100 companies, uh, largely domiciled in the U.S., focused in the oil and gas sector. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's a third are, are ultra high net worth families, family offices out of the UK and the United States and some Canada. And then the uh, hedge funds out of the United States. So it was really almost a third, a third, a third in, the, in those uh, three sectors and the cross section, uh, no, you know, the, no real Caymanian clients, uh, mm-hmm. which is not surprising. There's only 60,000 people, but you know, the yeah. Caymans has done a good job, even in this, it is a British overseas protectorate. Um, and even throughout this pandemic, uh, they've really gone, you know, there's zero deaths. There's technically one, and it was an Italian gentleman who got off a cruise ship and had a heart attack. So they, oh, they call God. that as one. I mean, it's still a death that is a travesty. No yeah. what. But where they've gone is they've now closed their borders until September 1st. And they really kind of similar to their financial services. Um, the, it is the strongest hotel market uh, prior to this. Uh, in the Caribbean, um, and uh, the uh, they're anticipating you know the population to grow by you know fifteen percent. So it's a very much a highly designated market, and that's going to become even more so uh, with the current developments in the in the world. Yeah, we did a podcast with uh, 
an offshore lawyer and a director actually on came. We talked a bit about the tax structure. It's kind of interesting. The one with Harney's and uh, Kern Group. Sure. And uh, yeah, and I think the fifteen percent growth is just from Canadians. <laughs> leave it. Leave well, it we're, yeah, the Canadians are. There's about seven thousand Canadians in, in the service sector and others there in the professional sector. But you're right. We're us and the Australians are the. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny because the the uh, restaurants and and whatnot. They're especially when the, the hockey playoffs are on or rugby. They're they're both oh, yeah. you know, filled with Canadians and Australians. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. I don't, maybe how, how does a how does a fund like uh, like Steve has fit into the portfolios that you have for your clients? So it's um, like liquidity and the income, and like you said, high risk adjusted returns. But may, you also mentioned that some of the younger folks may not have as much in the way of alternatives. It seems like alternatives return less, or or are they kind of just not ready for it? Or how do how do you how do you place something like that in the portfolio? Uh, no, not necessarily. I wouldn't say that they return less. Mm-hmm. Um, I will. I'll, I'll focus on that. But uh, in terms of asset allocation, the way I look at things, I like to call it evolutionary portfolio construction. Uh, So back in the good old days, you used to invest in cash stocks and bonds. Um, In the 2000s, it would have been cash stocks, uh, bonds and alternatives. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I like to view the different buckets, um, it would be income, capital growth, real assets, and volatility management. So when I'm allocating a client's portfolio, first understanding their objectives, uh, looking at tax efficiency, um, I like to have a certain percentage in each of those investment buckets. And it would look different for younger clients as versus older clients, or if there are certain specific objectives for lower volatility. And so mm-hmm. that volatility management bucket would have um, a certain percentage of assets that would be in in strategies that are not, not correlated to equity markets. Capital growth would include your equities. That could be global, mm-hmm. U.S., Canadian equities. Um, in the real assets category, I would have some precious metals and real estate. Um, and then the income category, I could have uh, some bonds, very little in bonds. I, I prefer to go with alternatives. Um, I think in the current interest rate environment, you will lose money in bonds. So mm-hmm. we look to some long, short credit strategies in that area. It could be uh, dividend paying equities and it could be private debt in that area as well. So that's kind of where it would fit. Cool. And how about like, um, well, I see the two, the two inevitable things in life are death and taxes, but I think it's also like fees and taxes. So what, uh, what kind of fee load do you typically see from, from alternative investments? Uh, is it the typical two and 20 or are there some other types of structures? And then how do taxes, cause I think with a long short credit, you're going to have it's interest income, right? And then you have the private lending. Is it, is it, is there a mix to the private lending tax treatment? Um, or how, and how do you, how do you manage that for your clients or um, to optimize the returns at the end of the day? So for the most part, the income paying strategies would go into registered accounts. Um, I do have fairly sizable registered accounts for older clients mm-hmm. um, that could handle de- a decent size investment. Um, but what you end up having are, are older clients who don't have income that if they do need the income, they're either taking it out of a riff or they might uh, 
be taking it from their investment portfolio. And so if they don't have income, then we can still, uh, you know, invest in a non-registered position. But ideally, uh, these investments, I tend to put them into registered accounts. And those, the income is taxed uh, at 100%. Mm-hmm. So we are very cognizant of where, where these positions go in client portfolios. And then the, the fee levels generally, like it's, you can get ETFs for like six bips or something, but these are different, obviously, because they deliver different performance. Well, you do tend to see slightly higher fees with alternative investments, and we are very cautious and aware of these high fees. And mm-hmm. um, when we are hiring managers for their expertise in areas that we don't have that expertise or an ETF won't solve that allocation that we're looking for, um, we tend to, you know, we're looking at net of fee returns, right? Mm -hmm. So we're evaluating all of those things, including fees, liquidity. There are a lot of things to consider when we're reviewing managers, uh, their reputations, the amount of due diligence that goes into finding these managers that we're going to partner with for the long term. I should say with, uh, with the Sterling product, the fees that they charge uh, don't go back to their management team. They all go back into the fund for the benefit of the investors. So I think it'd be great for Steve to kind of talk about that, which differentiates them from other private debt managers out there. So those returns are in fact higher than what you would see uh, versus other products out there. And that would be one of the reasons for that. Oh yeah, you're right. Cause there's most, uh, when you're originating these mortgages, I imagine like there is an origination fee, which sometimes goes to that manager. But if you pop it back into the, for the investors. Well, yeah, maybe Steve, how did you, how do you guys manage that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. A good question. We, we, um, you know, firstly, we are a, an alternative asset manager that has an operating mm-hmm. platform. So, um, what's different from us and a lot of the other, uh, call it mortgage managers, if you will, is we have a fully integrated company behind, which helps in a variety of fronts in terms of taking over assets, fixing assets, et cetera. But what makes, you know, and, and I've got a long mm-hmm. history with the banks and, and the mortgage business and, you know, the mortgage platforms in the commercial sector uh, for the banks, you know, and throughout the banks, of course, the residential platforms are cornerstones mm-hmm. of the banks. They are mortgage uh, generating fee machines. So if you recall 30 years ago, if someone took out a mortgage, there might be a hundred dollar administration fee associated with it. Well, the evolution and the, uh, of the banks is there's probably now five or six different fees around every mortgage. Oh yeah. Right. So there's origination fees as you touched, as you touched on James, um, standby fees, extension fees, commitment fees, syndication fees. And so what's different from us is, uh, many managers pay those fees out to the external manager. Uh, for us, uh, we just think that's, uh, you know, a misalignment at, at, at the least, uh, some conflicts at the, at the worst. For investors, so we pay all of those fees around the mortgages flow through to our investors. And so, if you think of the relative input, without taking on any incremental risk, last year in our portfolio we delivered about ten point six percent net to investors, net of fees, and we calculated almost two hundred basis points uh, of that were of that return were fees. And so if you think about it, there's no incremental risk because you've underwritten the mortgages and yet you're getting the benefit in your return of the fee stream associated with the origination of the mortgages. And there's always something going on with them too, as you know, they're not static creatures and you know, mm-hmm. real estate's not a homogeneous product. Each one's different. 
So we have uh, 36 mortgage positions around the world now. Uh, and there's always something going on with the mortgage. So right now, today, we just extended uh, one of our longstanding customers. Uh, and, you know, there was an extension fee that flows through to our investors. Mm. And we actually believe so strongly in it. Uh, we also, our redemption fees don't go to us. They go through to the investors because we just think that's a good alignment. So when if uh, people wanted to redeem the streams with that, flow directly through into our investors return. You know, when you think about, you know, our product, it's a diversification strategy, not correlated to equities. Uh, for our investors, it's U.S. dollars only, U.S. dollars in and out, and primarily uh, U.S. assets outside of Canada, you know, because we just think the Canadian assets are priced to per, uh, perfection. But, uh, you know, the inherent operating logistics of the business, I think, are very investor-friendly. Wow. So where are you finding opportunities now? Like, is it uh, different like types of borrowers or assets that you're up against or geographies within the U.S.? We see this, you know, and we've been through a lot of downturns, and they were the greatest opportunities mm -hmm. uh, to uh, earn money. But fundamentally, our investment strategy is to find high-quality borrowers and assets in markets we like that have some element of financial ah. distress around it. So, for example, right now, we think the Florida market and the Texas market are, uh, are strong, uh, strong demographics. The migration from New York to Florida is on an annualized run rate in the could be in the magnitude of a low 20% savings in taxes on an annualized basis. So uh, the other thing where markets we like are uh, we like the eastern seaboard again at, at a macro level, we start um, focusing usually on right to work mm -hmm. states which are uh, union free. There's now 24 of them in the U.S. You know, real estate is, you know, as they say, quote, you know, it's bums in the seats. So it's follow the jobs. If you take Toyota, for example, their four largest production plants are in Texas and Kentucky. It's quite amazing, actually. Uh, things like Orlando now has become like the biomedical hub, high, high paying jobs. It's not all about, uh, you know, uh, Mickey land, but uh, people want to live in celebration just to get access to their hospitals. They have like the state-of-the-art neuro-robotics, and it was Walt Disney's kind of cradle-to-grave legacy of, of where to live. Uh, we have some in the UK as well, but only entry-level housing uh, because the government has stepped behind it and uh, has some unique uh, programs to assist their borrowers. So again, our capital is there to help our borrowers perfect their capital structure. And, and what we like about it is you know, our average loan to value is, is very low in our funds because that's how people get in trouble. We're at 50%. So a borrower would have to burn through 50% of their equity uh, before there's any issues. Cool. How about the structure of your fund? Is it, I guess it's open-ended and like, what sort of liquidity do you give investors and then have you needed to gate in these uh, crazy times here? Yeah, it's the appropriate question. Um, uh, number one, no, we have not gated. Uh, not only that, we just distributed our quarterly uh, dividend. So the structure of our fund is we pay a preferred dividend, uh, preferred return of 7% distributed quarterly. As I said, we just distributed first quarter uh, last month. Um, uh, so people are very happy with that. Um, and uh, we do not have not had to gate. Uh, we have uh, at this time zero defaults in the fund. Uh, which is very uh, good. I think it's a, a function of, A, we're focused in the residential space. Uh, B, we know, as I said, that 50% loan to value obviously is helpful. And also uh, a key metric is in almost all cases, get a personal guarantees on our loans. By and large, no defaults, 
Uh, we've had, uh, uh, you know, think of over 100 and approximately 150 million of equity and uh, under 300,000 of redemptions. So I think it's partly people such as the professionals we deal with, like Ida, who their investors understand what our product is. It's real estate. It's a longer term product. You know, if we had to put the, the gates up, people could take uh, funds out quarterly. Uh, but, you know, there is a redemption fee, as Ida touched on, that goes through to the other investors. And it's kind of five, four, three, two, one over the years. Uh, yeah. So for Ida, how do you, uh, are, clients are, are okay with quarterly? Or is it just that they see this as their income thing and they're not going to worry too much about it and they've got other sorts of liquidity elsewhere? And um, have you had any kind of, maybe maybe not for this one, but from similar ones where they've said, listen, just get me out of this thing. And um, and like when, I guess when, when emotions are running wild or is everybody pretty much, they know the deal and they're, they're good to go? Uh, for the most part, we haven't really had any issues. I think I've been with Sterling for well over five or six years now. Um, as mentioned earlier, most of these investments are going into registered portfolios. So uh, if anything, clients might need income from that if they're older, mm. if they're taking money out of rifts. So it's a great product to have that spits out cash, uh, 7% paid quarterly, providing some of that income. Uh, younger clients have a longer term horizon. Unfortunately, I think the only uh, scenarios where we've had to redeem uh, have been to facilitate uh, estates or, or clients who have passed right. um, and or transferring those positions uh, to other clients. So um, we have a, we're, we're quite pleased that uh, they've allowed us to now invest in this product on a monthly basis so that we can continue allocating for new clients as well mm. um, or clients who want to add cash to their portfolio. So it's a great product uh, that we now have access to on a monthly basis. Uh, in the past, it was done as a syndicated offering once or twice a year. And so we would have to wait for it, but uh, it's, it's great now that it's monthly. So we have access to that. Yeah, that's cool. And now anybody uh, worried about the, or maybe they want the U.S. dollars. Like everything's, I guess, in U.S. assets, U.S. dollars in, U.S. dollars out. Um, is that something that they're looking for? Is it is it more of an inconvenience for Canadian investors? What do you find? I do uh, actually for clients who do a lot of traveling in the U.S. Uh, I often do buy the U.S. class, so it's great to have uh, that available in U.S. dollars as well. To to have the U.S. dollars an income coming into the portfolio and then clients can take mm. that cash and spend it if they'd like. So it's great to have that as well, but there is currency exposure. We're aware of the currency exposure um, to the U S dollars. And, and I mean, we look at it from big picture where we do want to have exposure to U S dollars. So it is taken in consideration when we're uh, when we're doing our asset allocation to have, uh, certain dollars exposed to U.S. Uh, assets and to global assets and and Canadian assets as well. So, cool. Well, obviously, you've done your diligence on on Sterling and others. Uh, how? What are the things you look for in a in a private lender? What kind of uh, like three main questions or criteria that that would really, um, if they didn't have it, you'd be like, well, this is probably a no go. And if they did, you're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna really look further into this, and it might be something we'll add to the to their portfolios? Well, we really try to get to know the managers well in terms of 
who they are, their reputation. Um, we have a pretty big network. I've been on Bay Street for 20 years and um, we have a lot of friends to talk to in the business and um, we go through a fairly uh, in-depth due diligence process with all of our managers. Mm -hmm. We take many factors into consideration, uh, fees, currency exposure, liquidity, um, you know, even in terms of how the portfolios uh, have exposure in, for if they have institutional investors and uh, what kind of situations we could find ourselves in if, uh, if you know, things do change in the world. I mean, this COVID situation has really um, presented us with an opportunity to really see who can do what they say, said they were going to do in, in this kind of environment mm. and, um, and really see how, how performance is impacted. Um, so it's a really interesting time now to really test these managers and see how they're surviving and getting through this uh, crisis and how their um, positions are impacted, their investors and how the fund is impacted. So Steve, can you please speak to what you're seeing and in, in light of COVID, what is happening with banks and their lending practices and how that's impacting some of the borrowers that are currently in the fund um, and those that potentially may be uh, looking at bank financings at, with lower interest rates? It's a, good, it's a good point because it's, again, uh, you know, our mantra is uh, defense first, uh, you know, uh, the old uh, hockey analogy, I guess, defense wins championships. So we've been playing defense, but the opportunities are now arising. And the other benefit we have in our uh, fund, James, is the oh, wow. uh, we have no leverage in our fund. A lot of uh, fund managers lever their fund. It boosts returns. But as we're seeing now, when the, uh, the tide goes out, you're seeing who's swimming naked. And it's the bank, the repo agreements with all the banks are causing the U.S. mortgage REITs to to uh, put the gates up and there, a lot of them are in trouble. But we have no leverage. So, uh, you know, uh, debt kills. Um, and uh, again, just another differentiating factor of ours. But the other thing we have is that, uh, you know, uh, the banks, because I just right, the banks are putting, you know, having used to be a banker, you know, they'll give you an umbrella yeah. on a sunny day. But uh, they now, you know, the first quarter ended, obviously, and the margin calls went in to all these mortgage REITs that had uh, leverage. And that caused that all the, you saw the publicity. Uh, similarly with their borrowers, they are, you know, they're, you know, they're getting up to 80, 90% loan to value. They're in trouble. Yeah. Right. Uh, again, the only way you can control this with your leverage on your fund and loan to value. A, we have no leverage and B, you know, we have 50% loan to value. The other benefit that's now coming, we did a loan last week in this environment. And we noticed, I guess we just got lucky a bit as well, late last year, we were starting to get outbid uh, on uh, mortgages. Uh, you know, people said we're too expensive. And we just saw the pricing start to get a little, you know, bumping up. As we know, trees do not grow to the sky. And as getting into late cycle events. Uh, as this has reminded us, whether it's COVID or not, uh, you know, economic cycles haven't gone away. Uh, but what's happened is, so one in particular, an asset we really wanted, but we were disciplined and we didn't get it. Um, uh, they just, uh, so they went with a bank yep. in the U.S., a regional bank. Uh, they came back to us last week and said, is your uh, offer still there? Because the bank walked. Uh you know, uh, we said, well, our offer's there, but the pricing has changed. 
So a lot, you know, round trip, we ended up with an asset we want at much more advantageous terms. We picked up about 200 basis points in return without any incremental risk, actually less risk because we lent them less money on the asset. So the opportunities and, and where we're uniquely positioned is because of our bank and our banking licenses, we have correspondent banking relationships with some of the major banks mm. in the world, the Wells Fargo, CIBC, Northern Trust. So that kind of dialogue is helpful because, you know, the banks come to us to underwrite some of their loans, to partner with them on some loans, uh, to buy some of their loans. So, you know, the commercial lending business is a bit of a club. Uh, and once you're in it, it's, it's uh, you know, there are barriers to entry. And, you know, we like that as well. There is a moat around the business somewhat. Great. Thanks, Steve. Those are excellent insights. Uh, and over to you, Ida. Uh, what's your advice for investors now? Um, well, my advice to investors right now would be to stay the course. Um, I guess um, unless you're a short-term investor, um, you know, if you have a long-term view, if you uh, have a great advisor, know what you own, um, be well-informed, don't panic, sell, and make bad decisions or let emotions make decisions for mm. you. Um, I, you know, I would encourage investors to find a good advisor who has access to different asset classes and strategies um, that you might not have access to um, if you're maybe at one of the larger financial institutions. Um, you know, having the tools and the freedom to make decisions and uh, the expertise that might be with uh, an alternative-minded man manager who might give you. Yep. A bit of a different view and perspective i think uh you know that would definitely help as well as taking a holistic approach i just keep coming across situations where um, estates are poorly managed and uh, not well organized and unforeseen events happen and um, i'm seeing a lot of situations where uh, people's uh, i guess the kids are burdened with um with messy estates and where there might not have been wills or, or affairs put into order. So I would encourage people to f kind of focus on taking some time to look at, look at their estates and, and have them well organized and have wills and powers of attorney in place and up to date and check in on their parents for the, on those things as well. Cool. Thanks. How about you, uh, Steve, your parting thoughts to investors? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a time to pause and reflect. Um, definitely, uh, we think there's, uh, you know, as I said earlier, defense first. I think uh, the strength of a portfolio, and and I think as Ida's alluded to, having alternative assets now is the time that it pays dividends. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, the non-correlation of public equities, having a diversified portfolio, and you know, we still see the Canadian market, quite honestly, as from a real estate perspective as price to, price to perfection. Um, and we think, uh, you know, uh, as the U.S. market and the U.S. dollar, all of our loans are, um, uh, we don't hedge anything. So the borrowers take all the risk uh, on the loans. And, um, you know, we're seeing many institutional investors, unlike 0809, where there was true systemic risk, you know, a lot of the U.S. and global companies came into this with strong balance sheets, um, as did the banks. And so I think, you know, someone said the other day, uh, it won't be, I don't believe it'll be a V recovery. Uh, and they said not even a U recovery, but more like the Nike swoosh recovery. As long as it's not an I. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ida. We'll uh, have you both another uh, podcast sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, everybody. It's a, a very good chat. I'm very appreciative.